This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hello, I'm Carl Pillemer. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research and your host on this podcast series on Doing Translational Research. It's a real pleasure to have with me today Dr. Janice Whitlock, who is a research scientist in the Bronfenbrenner Center. She's the director of the Youth Risk and Opportunity Lab and the founder of the renowned and well-known Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery. She has a wide range of research interests, but they include non-suicidal self-injury in youth and adolescence. Uh, she's interested in social media and mental health and in youth connectedness in schools and communities. Uh, a current interest of hers uh, has its focus on the development of early detection and intervention in mental health and well-being using social media and other technology, pursuing research related to sexual health, uh, and also development in the digital age. And she has had a career-long dedication to translating research into practice and policy, which brings us to the topic of our time together. So thank you, Janice and Malcolm. Thank you, Carl. So I'd like to begin, one of the ways that we like to start our podcast is just for you to tell our listeners how you would summarize your main research interests. Or um, another way to think about this is, uh, what are some of the biggest questions that your work tries to inform or to resolve? Well, that's a really good question, and when I was thinking about that, um, I struggled to find the right umbrella. I'd say at the at its broadest, in its broadest sense, I'm really interested in the way that context shape um, youth risk and opportunity. So what are the ways, what do we need to do, what do we need to know, and what do we need to do to create environments in which young people cannot just, and, and all of us, but particularly young people and families, uh, cannot just sort of survive but thrive. And um, so my early work in connectedness and resilience as a, as a researcher um, focused on the role that schools and communities played in fostering a perceived connectedness. And there were some pretty interesting findings out of that. One of those was the, the there was a really interesting, it was very clear that it was a very dynamic interplay between the filters that, that the young people bring and all humans bring to their world, many of which are well-shaped even by middle, you know, middle adolescents. Um, and then the context that they that they encounter, so the environments they encounter, and the way that that dynamic shapes what happens next became very interesting. So when the self-injury research project came along, which was definitely a bit of an unexpected turn, uh, to expect to be studying self-injury, it definitely still afforded me an opportunity to really look at that, that interplay between what happens inside a, a person, uh, how that gets to be that way, and then how that interacts with what happens outside and what what happens next. So I'd say a pretty much that's a that's a theme that runs throughout all of the research I do in terms of my focus. I'm also really interested in um, understanding how chronic hardship, in some way or another, like individuals struggling with self injury or mental health challenges, uh, or families struggling with kids that have those things, how that can lead to enhanced perspective taking, enhanced enhanced wisdom, enhanced self-awareness, and a lot of the, the characteristics that we know can lead to well-being in later life. And it does look like some of those are mutable, and it does look like hardship, even if it's, uh, it's not a traumatic event, but it's sort of chronic, can cultivate broader, better human beings in some cases. 
That's great. And there's always a question that people aren't really prepared for, but I just can't resist asking. So here's the one here. Um, you've been working on this for over a decade, right? Or for uh, since well, yeah, two, I started my doctoral research in two thousand, a little before two thousand. So the world has changed a lot for kids in that time. I mean, I think of my own kids being in high school then, and how different it is now for them. It, do you find in general that these issues of connectedness, um, um, the whole social media issue, is is life really different for kids in the areas that, that you study? Or are the issues um, fundamentally similar to what you started out with? That's a really good question, and it's kind of a complicated answer. I mean, the sort of the fundamental tasks and passages that humans go through as we develop, as we develop probably haven't changed much ever. Um, but, of course... The shape that that the shape that that takes is very foundationally shaped and affected by what they encounter on the outside, and what's very clear. So I should just pause here and say, before being a researcher, I spent over a decade in in practice on the front line, working directly with young people and with families. And I was a foster parent to a young woman who had all sorts of issues, and so I got to really see from that angle. Um, and and I thought a lot about what it takes for people to develop over time. What's what? What it's clear now is that, um, in some ways, the environmental affordances and the, the stimulation, the opportunities, the, even the resources that we applaud and have worked very hard to bring in, are also burdensome in some developmental ways because there's so much, so fast, and there's so much to collate and coordinate, especially in the adolescent passage when there's so much development taking place naturally. So I would say, yeah. I mean, I do think a lot of what we've ushered in through, and we worked hard to usher in, and all this cool technology we have is in some ways complicated the developmental passage in ways that exceed a lot of people's ability to really accommodate healthily. Um, yeah, no, I think that's really true, and we see it, of course, across the lifespan. You know, to turn for a moment to your work in self-injury, which I know is an area that you're especially well-known for, one of the things that it strikes me that you do uh, corresponds to a piece of advice I got as a graduate student, which is to choose a very specific topic, maybe a circumscribed area, but one that sheds light on a lot of other dimensions yeah. of, of human development. And I, could you tell us a little bit about your work in self-injury? I think, you know, that one question that people might not even be aware of if they aren't familiar is how extensive this issue is. And to the extent to which it's a growing problem or whether interventions exist to deal with it? Yeah, sure. It's kind of a funny story. So I have a master's in public health that I brought into my, my PhD program in developmental psychology, as you know, or human development. And, um, and I did not expect to be studying self-injury, that it wasn't at all. I didn't even know it existed, actually, in 2003. And so when it entered my life through a variety of personal channels, because I have friends whose kids were injuring and I couldn't wrap my brain around it, and having worked on the front line for so long, I hadn't really encountered it, even in my fo with my foster daughter, as I said, who had lots of issues, but not this one. I got curious, and I went to the literature, and I was really shocked in 2003 what little literature there was, even though when I was asking all of my professional friends on the front line, so these are pediatricians and teachers and counselors, I'm, I said, are you, are you seeing this? And all of them said, oh, yeah, a lot. And I'll never forget when I asked my pediatrician friend, who's local, and she, uh, she said, you know, in her adolescent clinic on Fridays, they, she would estimate 10% of the kids that they saw were injuring, which was just mind-blowing, considering there wasn't 
really like a handful of articles and, and no good epidemiology, no nothing. So um, that led me to approach Gannett and ask if they were seeing it and whether they wanted to, to cooperate on a study, and that sort of bl- blossomed this program, which was supposed to be a tiny little side program. <laughs> and Gannett is our local health system. Our local system. health, yeah, in, yeah, at Cornell. So, um, so that really captivated my attention, and like I said, it was supposed to be a side program. It grew much bigger because the need was so great. And what I discovered a few years in is but. Uh, when I was starting to think, why am I studying self-injury? I mean, I really want to study connectedness and thriving. I want to understand how adversity can cultivate um, enhanced self-awareness. I mean, those were the things I was really interested in. Um, I, I remember really having to sit down and think about this. Like, I'm, I'm here, and I'm, in, I'm associated with Human Development Department. We don't typically study health-related issues, like a, that that would be better placed in a medical school or a school of public health, maybe. Or a clinical program, um, but it was so clear that the need was so huge, uh, and that I could make a, a, a pretty big impact in the world with with policy and practice because the need for, for information mm-hmm. was big. That we were well positioned to do good quality studies in this area, and that it still afforded me the opportunity to look at many of the sort of core psychological and social psych processes that I was interested in. Thought I should we should just keep going. Oh, well, that's an actually an excellent segue into the question because you've sort of talked about uh, the relationship between research and the real world. And let me come to the next question, which is around issues. We're trying to explore in these podcasts people's experiences as researchers working in real-world settings. I know that you've extensively engaged co- community agencies and providers and non-academic stakeholders in your work. And I'd like to ask, you know, kind of what that experience has been like for you, if you've encountered any particular challenges with working with community partners or folks in the policy arena or any, we're also looking for tips or strategies to make that relationship easier. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's a big question. Uh, Yeah, it never occurred to me not to do that because I am a practitioner at heart. I mean, the idea that I'd go back and get a PhD was actually not even on the agenda until the late 90s. It wasn't something that I came out of undergrad with, for example, because I'm a change agent, first and foremost, um, in a lot of ways. So so that life passage of the first 12 years of my life working in the field with, with people and with issues from the practitioner perspective and with an eye to policy is just a huge part of who I am. And it very much shaped the researcher that I've become because I, I can't ever divorce myself from the, okay, so what does this matter? And are we plumbing the depths of common sense or is this going to somehow, I mean, common practical sense, <laughs> or is this going to somehow actually make a difference? Um, and that, that sensibility, I think, and that's really what it is, it's a sensibility more than anything else, has really made it easy to work with, with people in the field because I get it. Like, I just get the way they're often oriented, what they care about. Um, and it's not hard to, to flip into that mode and talk to them. And then, and then it's not hard to build trust and credibility and all the things that we need on the research end. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of tips, it's, there's lots to say there, but probably one of the biggest ones from the outset is they, uh, my experience has been that providers or policymakers need to know why this is important in terms of the way they think. Um, and, and, you know, for researchers to spend a little time thinking about that or even just asking 
why would this matter? What about this topic would make a difference for you in your world? Because it's often not hard to accommodate that in a research question. You can either add an aim or a research question or some dimension of something you're already doing to, to, to accommodate the things that are of fundamental interest to them. But anyway, yeah, it's just, it would never, it wouldn't have occurred mm-hmm. to me not to go to our health center here at the early part of the self-injury stuff and say, ask them what they were seeing and whether it was of any research in this area was going to be of any value. And it sounds like it leads to more um, effective and precise research questions. And oh, I so it's starting a dissemination. It sounds like you're saying to have the idea of eventual dissemination and use built into the, the whole research program. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I could start there. Because, for example, the research on self-injury is a good example. Had I not gone to the folks there... I don't think that research ever would have happened because, as it turns out, there was a lot of red flags that went up when I, when I, you know, went into IRB and said I'd like to study this and I'm going to ask people questions. They immediately went to the folks at our health center at the the highest levels and said, "Is this a good idea?" If they hadn't met me, if we hadn't had conversations, if if we hadn't all agreed that yes, it was a good idea. I can't imagine that some of the people who had to show up to some of those meetings would have ever shown up for me uh, or for this research. So it, it wasn't just their sensibilities. It was actually a lot of their agency that allowed things to go forward from the very beginning. And interestingly, we, I was just going to do the first population-based research at Cornell, but I got a call from somebody at Princeton saying, can we be a part two? Because one of our administrators at Cornell, who was very aware of this because of those conversations, brought it to her, you know, a group she was in, and, and they realized they they wanted to know too. So it ended up benefiting me as a researcher. Yeah, and so they the were world willing of practice, to walk it through the whole process there. And so the world of practice can help you make research connections. Uh, you know, I also know that you have done work that I think exceeds a lot of other folks I know, including me, in making sure that the programs you developed are sustainable. And I am in, um, in a sense of, you know, developing a great website, but also now working with electronic distance learning as a way of um, engaging the public into evidence-based um, approaches towards the, uh, this topic. Could you say a bit about that? I mean, was that, it, it, it seems like it was a lot of effort, but also very worthwhile. Yeah, it wasn't even secondary, it's kind of primary. It kind of goes back to that sensibility thing, but I'm an educator probably before I'm anything else. So um, it was going to be always going to be really critical and always will be critical that whatever I discover is something that we can feed back to people who are in the best position to use it and make a difference in people's lives. So that hasn't been that hard because we have greater and greater vehicles through technology to be able to get information out there. So, um, and we have profoundly gifted students who are willing and able to use their time to develop things for people. It makes them very, they like it. They get their names on, on publications. I have to do some heavy duty editing at times, but we're able to parlay a lot of the talents of our students here in exchange for credit and experience to create things. It's really an ideal situation. I think it's remarkably seamless kind of bringing the undergraduate education with the research and the outreach. Um, I do want to touch on one more area, Janice, before our time is gone. I wonder, in terms of the areas in which you do your work, are there two or three things that you think 
might be important for the general public to know, or um, if I can use the term ordinary citizens like myself, but what about your uh, research on, on um, self-injury or more generally is what is a message you would particularly like to get out? Okay, let's see. Well, one of the things that has been a constant refrain through all of the research is that small moments and exchanges matter. I mean, it, 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 policy and structure and money and resources are important, but a lot happens in when people ex- exchange moments with each other. So, for example, in the connectedness research, it was astounding how much a teacher noticing that a student had a new hairdo or knowing what color their eyes were, or just making, noticing they were in a bit of a funk that day and just saying, hey, I can see you're in a bit of a funk, are you cool? Or those tiny little moments that are completely cost-free and have everything to do with where someone gives attention and caring, it mattered tremendously in students' assessment of connectedness in all the different ways that I measured it. And that wasn't just true for schools, it was true for communities too. So on the streets, in stores, walking by somebody, whether you look them in the eye and acknowledge their human existence or not, that the, that sort of theme of sort of the way that small moments and exchanges matter has very much shown up over and over again in a lot of the research that I do. Um, and that just really stokes the in, continued interest in sort of the exchange of what people bring to experiences and what they get from each other independent of the actual words said. So small things matter, and those are very important. And I'd say the only other thing that, that I'd want to emphasize at this point is that, um, one, and for researchers in particular, to know that pr- providers in particular, people who are actually working with families, children, or other people, they need not just knowledge, but they need hope. They need inspiration. They need, they need, they need to believe that the work that they're doing is going to help somebody and that they can actually do that with the resources they have. That's why those sort of small exchange messages are really important. And I, you know, I definitely tell you in the, in the self-injury world with practice, it, it matters. It makes an enormous difference about whether somebody goes into, say, uh, a rage and has to be locked down in an institution um, or whether or not you can de-escalate a situation in a calm way that then enhances the perception that people are cared for, which in turn can de- sort of can start to um, remedy some of the mental health challenges people have. It, it can all happen in these tiny moments. And providers really resonate with that message. Of- you know, I think that's true. And, and as a sociologist, we tend to look at the macro level, mm-hmm. but it's really this fabric of micro um, interactions, which really yeah. dovetails with a lot of contemporary research. Well, you and I could go on for a very long that's time. And it's been a great pleasure to talk with you, and I imagine that we will at some point again. And I'd like to thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank our listeners for being with us again on Doing Translational Research, and we hope you will join us for our next installment. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.com dot cornell dot edu